Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Roll for Persuasion. Thank you so much for joining me here uh, each and every week, allegedly, uh, that we're able to get the show out. It's so much fun getting to talk to some of these awesome and fantastic people in gaming and entertainment about the uh, great stories they tell and the things that inspire those stories. Before we get to our awesome guest today, I do want to give a great shout out to one of my uh, my favorite companies, not just because they pay me to say that, but because they genuinely are Hero Forge. If you are like me and you love tabletop gaming and you like to make lots of little figures, Hero Forge is a place to go. They are literally, uh, I think, a limitless source of creative options for making whatever little miniatures you want for your tabletop games. I have no less than 12 Hero Forge minis just on my desk right now. And they are all different and unique and perfectly mine. And through some sort of strange eldritch magic, they are able to actually print these minis in color somehow. So if you are also like me and not handy with a paintbrush, you can have color minis too. You can free free your creative juices and make the miniature of your dreams by going to HeroForge.com. They release new content every single week. So every Tuesday they drop some sort of cool new thing, whether it's new hairstyles, new uh, clothes that your character can wear, new weapons, new poses, new animal friends. And they just previewed some really awesome stuff coming in 2022. Some like truly insane stuff. Go to their socials at HeroForge Minis um, to check it out because uh, some of the things they're going to be able to do on this platform are insane. So thank you to them for supporting the show and for, uh, you know, really, really, I'm essentially supporting myself because the amount of money that I spent on these minis uh, it, it dwarfs anything that comes back to me. So I encourage you to go and spend money there as well because they're not just a great product, but they're a great supporter of various creators in this community. So check them out, HeroForge.com. And as I mentioned, uh, I have exciting, awesome people here with me every single week, and I'm very excited about the guest joining with me today. Uh, the one and only Will Campos, co-star of Dungeons and Daddies, one of the story boys on uh, Story Break, the podcast, Rest in Peace, one of my favorite R. shows. R.I.P. in peace, yeah. Oh, Thank man. You. Uh, yeah. <laughs> a beautiful show, which I'm sure we'll talk about. And uh, so many other things right around Video Game High School. Uh, Will, how are you doing? What's going on, man? I'm doing really good. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. I was going to ask, you should you should start, you should do a little Hero Forge of every guest on the show, and then you can have like a little collection of all your guests in their Hero Forge form. That's a, that's a great idea that I came up with. Um, it's my idea now. <laughs> I am literally writing down. Um, that's, that's really good. I'm going to steal that. Perfect. Uh, and I should. Hero Forge, thank you uh, already for the support that maybe you'll show me on this. Um, we did a Hero Forge-inspired Story Break episode, actually, forever ago. We, you um, did. I have, we, I've we got onto one. Hero Forge like, pretty early because Matt Arnold, uh, one, of, uh, the, one of the fellow Story Boys slash Dungeons & Daddies uh, players, um, is a big mini guy. He's into Warhammer and stuff. So he was like, you guys got to check out this site, Hero Forge. You can make whatever you want. And so we created the stupidest character we could think of on Hero Forge, like this bald guy in a diaper with a sniper rifle and angel wings riding a motorcycle. We were like, let's do a story break episode about this Hero Forge character. We came up with a whole backstory for him. So yeah, um, it was. We I think we eventually ordered it. I think it was. We called him Dirty Dan. He was like this weird, like sort of like a Cupid type character. But anyway, it was, it, Hero Forge is awesome. I love clicking around on their website. It's so fun. See, not just not just a, a great product to have. I literally just go in there and make stuff. My daughter's three, and she's like, "Can I make a D and D character?" And so oh my go god, that's so like cute! Shape ah. it out. It is. It's really adorable. That's lovely. Um, that's I hadn't heard that episode, so I'll have to go listen. Oh to yeah, it. check so, it out. Well, l- let's just jump in on that then, because uh, you're a writer, you're a, you're a screenwriter. Mm-hmm. Um, I I, and I I might speak for a lot of people here. As much as I think I know what a writer does in a, in a TV show setting or you know any sort of medium. I get the feeling that what we think we know 
and what actually happens when in the creative process mm. and like, and even the technical part of like script writing are so separate from us as consumers versus what you do as a writer. Um, how would you, how would you describe yourself as a writer or kind of what you do in the writing gig, if you will? Is that even the right question? Uh, yeah, uh, that's a, that's a, that's a valid question. Uh, so, yeah, I was like, if you have a, if you would find the official answer, let me know. Cause I don't know either. In that's my what my career, podcast I, reviews say. Andrew asks very valid questions. A very valid questions. You can use that as a bulk quote. Um, I so I got into I I really I'll just you know to wind up into it I I was really into writing as a kid like you know fourth fifth grade I started writing little short stories and stuff like that um like about spies and aliens and all that stuff you're into when you're that age and then I kind of kept it going in high school I was doing music at the same time I was I either I knew I was either going to go to school to study jazz saxophone or to do writing and then I got into USC's screenwriting program um and so that was how I started studying film. It was funny because I had a similar, I had a kind of light bulb moment where it's like, again, I think a lot of people, and this is maybe more like people our age than now, like, because I feel like, like, if you're growing up now, the, I don't know that kids understand that you used to be, there was like a real black box around the sure, creative, yeah. around the industry behind film or behind the content that you watch. Like it was, they did not want you to see, like, again, like you would see like, there would be like DVD bonus features or occasionally you'd see like some movie magic special on Fox or whatever. And they, but like really like there, if you wanted to learn how that stuff was made, you had to really seek it out and hunt it down. Whereas now, like, I think you see a lot more like writers and creators are like a big part. They're big personalities on Twitter and stuff like that. But for me, I had a light bulb moment in high school where I was like, oh, yeah, like, I like writing. I really like movies. Someone writes the movies. Like, and you, again, we always think of it as like a director medium. You think about people directing films, but like, so I knew like David Fincher, Quentin Tarantino. But yeah. I always, I never thought like, oh, Quentin Tarantino also sits down and writes this script and creates this thing. And then so I went to uh, school to study it. And again, like my impression going in, I was like, all right, so the writer, like you write funny dialogue. And that was what I liked writing as a storyteller. It was like, I was just like banter and stuff like that. And then you realize after you get into it that that's like, I talk a lot about like the cake and the frosting. And to me, like the dialogue is the frosting. It's not the cake. It's not the substantial structure of what you're doing as a writer. Like that's the, that's all the stuff that goes into when people are like, oh, the dialogue was so good in that. It's like, well, you don't understand is like, there was so much work that went into creating a scene with the right kind of characters and the right kind of conflict that good dialogue could even happen. And so for a long time, I banged my head against the wall as a writer. You know, I felt like people told me that like I was talented, they liked my voice, but like I would get stuck at like page 30 over and over and over again. Or like I'd write a movie and it would just be like, I don't, this sucks. Like, why does this suck? Why is this so bad? And I finally was like, I need to learn how to actually structure a story. I need to learn the actual deeper tissue stuff. And once I did, it was like, oh, oh my God. Okay, this is how it works. It's like the thought, the part that I thought was the main thing is the thing that comes at the very end. It's the polish. And it was really um, story by Robert McKee that kind of unlocked that for me when I read it. It was, he makes this case where he's like, look, when you're trying to write a scene, like he'll break down, like he goes through a couple of scenes in Casablanca and talks about like, he's like, in this moment, when Rick says this, this is his motivation. This is what he's trying to do. This is how Ilsa responds. Like the, like you, and so you start to like, oh my God, there's all this stuff going on underneath the surface. There's all this tension and conflict and human psychology playing out. They come into a scene one way, they're transformed by the end of it. Even like every moment of a movie, like in a really good movie is like a fractal 
of the whole thing. Like the all of this all of the structures that drive the conflicts of a movie like Star Wars, like the wants and the antagonist protagonist tension that all can like that is all everything that this the everything that climaxes in like the trench run is also the same energy the same drama that's going on like when luke is just you know bitching to his aunt and uncle about wanting not wanting to you know about wanting to go to tashi station it's all the same stuff there's a hot sale on power converters yeah at tashi station i heard once you start to understand that kind of internal combustion engine of storytelling and how it works like then you can start to build something and like you can really start to make something good like i feel like Video Game High School was the first really good thing that I wrote, and it was because I had incredible collaborators, uh, Freddie and then Matt Arnold and Brian Forenzi in the in the writer's room, and we worked it over and over and over and over again based on the original outline to take it to what it wound up becoming. And yeah, I don't know if that answers the question, but it's like, it's a lot less like, you know, I think for, for me, I thought when I started that it was going to be a lot of writing funny dialogue and like coming up with witty jokes and stuff like that, yeah. and it is a lot of asking yourself over and over and over again, what does this character want? What's in the way of what they want? How are they going to try to get what they want by overcoming what's in their way? And then you just ask yourself that. And it's also a lot of like uh, just coming up with a bajillion ideas until you find one that you like. And then, you know, then doubting it and trying to find a million more than going back to it. It's like the, it's not very glamorous. It's very hard and boring. And sure. Uh, when he, and when it works, when it pops off, it's like really exciting. Um, but yeah, so that's that's writing to me. Do, do you think what you're talking about the you know the deeper um, you know concrete bedrock of, of like those fractals that spread out across mm -hmm. the different stories? Do you think that the absence of that or lack of understanding of that is why so often? And now I'm just going to inject my opinion, and you're mm -hmm. going to answer a question based on my opinion. But why so often we seem it seems like we have movies or TV shows where somebody thought of the beginning and the end, and it's purely about getting the character to the end point, regardless hmm. of what the character would actually do or or what behaviorally makes sense. Like within a scene, it's just like, well, we have to get them. We know at this scene, they've got to be in this room doing this. And so we're just going to have a car chase until they get there. Does that, does that make sense? I, I see what you mean. So I would, I'd characterize the first like college and then video game high school is like, I got so spoiled on that project because we were in complete control of it from the beginning to the end. Mm, like, you know, we weren't answering to anybody. So you got to do exactly what you wanted to do and it was successful. And I was like, Oh, this is just what being a writer is like. You get good at writing and then everything else lines up. And what you realize very quickly is that a movie, especially like at the level of the kind of pop cinema that is uh, that again, pop cinema is like what got me into writing, right? Like the like Spider-Man two star Wars, you know, like that's i I'm a big yeah. dork. So that's the stuff that I got excited about. And that genre more than anything else, like it is a business, it is commerce. And there are so many decisions that go into making something like that, that have nothing to even do with the story that you wind up having to accommodate um, the, so like you know, think about like the Marvel movies and like what they have to get done, not just in terms of the demands of being like one movie and like a 20 bajillion part structure of all this other stuff going on. But you just like, just down to the rigors of this, like a star Wars, right? Like the, one of the major creative contributions one of the major creative things that happened in the force awakens is harrison ford broke his leg like there's right. like the and then you just have to like you're you're already laying the tracks down as the train is moving and you were trying to come up with it's you're just trying to come up with two hours of entertainment that'll keep that people will pay money for so it's like you it is like a bit like what's that is it the mike tyson who said everyone has a plan is it they get punched in the face like the yeah. screenwriting is coming up with your plan 
And then writing a movie is getting punched in the face over and over and over again. So, like, I can never... And again, a lot, sometimes, you know, to me, in my experience, people always go into a movie with the best of intentions of creating a really interesting story. And that might involve a lot of car chases. And again, that might be things, shiny objects that they're drawn to versus not. And especially because, like, when we did our show Dimension 404, like, we had a lot of... that was We did a lot more reshoots on that than we did in Video Game High School. And I got to see firsthand, like, the, like, the once, once you start duct taping stuff together just to try to get, get into shape. And, like, that's a lot of movie making as well. So, like, without like i i never want to be overly prescriptive when it comes to I'm like oh that movie didn't work because x y and z reasons that makes like, sense the yeah. i can look at it and analyze why i don't think the scenes work like you know like in a film like you know i don't i'm not gonna <laughs> trash talk anyone specifically but like i'll look at this and be like you know what i look at this movie and i feel like they didn't really know what it was about right so like there's a lot of conflict but it doesn't really seem to arrive anywhere right? i can be like this, these scenes in the middle again they don't make emotional sense for the character or, or like it does just kind of feel like they were trying to steer towards a car chase but it's hard it's really hard to reverse engineer from that to like what they were thinking or what the intent right. was cuz so much is up in the air and oftentimes a lot of the stuff that you loved might be stuff that was just stapled together at the last minute you know like that wasn't necessarily something that was like you know rot in the you know firmament of the mind or whatever but anyway so yeah that would be uh, yeah but it's it's interesting cuz again i think one of the things that's very challenging and interesting about filmmaking in particular compared to a lot of other me like writing a book or even doing something like Dungeons and Daddies where again it's small scale it's when you make it it's done right like the with with writing a movie versus writing a book when you write a book when you write the book that's the book and then you you edit it and you publish it there is a translation process with taking something from the page to the screen and a lot of money and a lot of people involved and that is Often where that's where the magic comes from, but that can also be like as a writer, what makes you pull your hair out when something doesn't work the way you saw it in your head. That's such a great point because, it, you know, us as consumers so easily forget the different aspects, the different ingredients that went into and, and not just, you know, um, like I have a, I have a background in video production. So I tend to be really mm -hmm. aware of, you know, lighting and coloring and, and you know, the actual um, cinematography of like a thing I'm watching, but then you're right. I don't think about like, well, what was the, what was the producer telling them they had to get done? What were the execs at the studio telling them it had to be in there? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it can be very easy. Like for instance, I'll throw someone under the bus. Uh, I'm a huge wheel of time fan, which is a fantasy mm. epic fantasy series. Um, that was recently adapted to a show and, uh, I'm not a fan of how it turned out and it can be very easy for me to look and say, well, they didn't light this properly and they rushed this dialogue and they threw this character to the side. But like, you're right. I don't know what the expectations from Amazon were, and I don't know, you know, whose car broke down on the way to, you know, filming <laughs> that one day that they could film somewhere in Norway, mm -hmm. so they had to do something different. Um, and and especially in a world of like hot takes and like tweeting and internet reaction, like it's very easy just to to quickly, I don't know, just shit on something that somebody worked really hard on, and like forget that there, you know, it was a whole bunch of people working really hard to try and make something they were proud of. Um, so that's that's important perspective to keep in mind. Yeah, it's you know it's it's an axiom that I try to live up to and fail to as 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 more 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 than one salty take has slipped through the cracks on Story Breaker on my Twitter feed that you know but it's like the and it's tough because you I do believe in like there's the I do I think the, you'll get it's you criticize something you know like and again I think criticism may's and art go hand in hand being able to look at something and be like this is what I think worked about it this what I, I think that's an honest honorable valid thing to do I think you know taking it to a level of you know ad hominem which is also very easy in our modern age where anger is what especially on a platforms like Twitter where like the more pissed off you are the the faster your message spreads and stuff like that that you know like when it gets kind of personal that can be kind of not great but like the 
you know, it's, you know, movies make us feel things. And when we don't like them, that makes us feel things too. So, you know, like uh, the, the emotion is kind of the point. The passion is the point. So it's, it's a tricky balance to get right, especially when you're, you know, especially when you're bringing something like a you want to raise a point of contention you know like the like you know like i have my franchises that i don't like that i have my things that i get frustrated with and it can be hard to know where the line is between or just kind of to know when and what to say and how to say it and why you're saying it you know like the and like because and then it's it's also yeah like it's like the like when i'm like i got a group thread with matt and freddie you know where like (laughs) the really unvarnished version of my opinion might come out on on a movie or like you know like which is but i'm like i don't know if i want to put that out on my twitter feed or something like that right what's a what's a movie that you saw recently that made you feel something Oh gosh. I just went to um uh we where are you in L you're in LA, right? Where are you? I'm in Houston, down in Texas. You're in Houston. Oh cool. I was born in Houston. Oh uh, uh, yeah, I grew up there. Congratulations either for being born here or for leaving. Uh we, we I moved to from Houston to Colorado when I was uh, turned eight or so. Oh wow. Um so we have uh, it's a theater called the New Beverly out in uh uh LA, which is Quentin Tarantino's theater, and they do like a oh, bunch yeah, of yeah. repertory screenings. It's all in thirty five. And um they did a, a Motivar double feature of Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down, and then High Heels. And my wife bought the tickets for them, but then she couldn't make it. She had something else. And I was like, yeah, I'm just going to go by myself, which is always a blast. I love going to movies by myself. I love going and to the, movies by I myself. I never do it. It's like a little date with yourself. It's like, ah. Like, I think especially like, yes, you're married. Like, you get like, is your family like becomes such, it becomes everything becomes like, it's nice to like, get a little, little like me time or yeah, a little time yeah. for myself. So I went, I was like, I had no expectations going in. I'd never seen an Almodovar film. And I fucking loved them. Both of them, I thought, were incredibly beautiful films. He's totally unlike anything you see in America. Like, it's this weird blend of, like, incredibly soapy melodrama, but with really beautiful heart. And just a sort of, like, it, it just, despite the fact that it can be kind of arch and even campy, if, you know, not campy, but, like, it has a heightened quality to it, but... There's a real humanity and a beauty to it um, that they they really like kind of they power each other and they're both just incredibly erotic like they're just like really intense sexy movies but um, the end of High Heels in particular the last scene of High Heels like as the lights went up I was just bawling like I everyone else was leaving the theater I was just crying over my popcorn by myself at midnight at this theater I was like this is one of the most beautiful things I'd ever seen so yeah that would probably be it recently like that was the one that really those that that double feature really knocked me out. And always I'm like, I need to see more. Like, I just fucking, we put on Frasier or I just watch the same shit over and over and over again. Like my comfort food that I like. I remember when I was 18, I would devour absolutely anything. I was like, what's this? What's that? I'm going to watch French gangster movies. I'm going to watch this. I'm going to watch that. I'm going to just give me it all. And then like you hit 30, you hit 35. Like you've seen so many movies. Like, you, I don't know. Like, I feel like I'm more protective of my time. And so like, it's just a lot of, I got to break through a lot more barriers before I'll go try something new, which is a real shame because like, that's how you get new ideas. That's how you get inspired. And so it was, it was really good for me to go do that. And I'm like, I got to do this more. I think that's really great because one of the things like I am, I don't know. I, I was homeschooled growing up, which I've talked about on the show before, which brings a bunch of interesting dynamics into things like media mm-hmm. and other things you consume. Um, as a, as a junior higher slash teenager, I got one of those. I mean, you remember from like the early nineties, like the tiny portable TVs you could get that were like Mm -hmm. really long and super heavy. I got one of those and I fished out like a VCR DVD player from like the church trash Mm -hmm. and like fixed it up. And then I would, I would steal DVDs from the library or VHSs because I wasn't allowed to check them out. So I would just take them with me and then bring them back. And that was how I like watched film and consumed, you know, movies. And that's how I watched, uh, 
What was that? What was that Nick Cage snuff film movie that I saw way earlier? Oh, eight millimeter, have. eight millimeter, whatever. This. I was like, <laughs> everyone I like has Nicolas one Cage. as a kid where you're like, what the fuck was I doing watching? Why did this I watch movie? that? But all I'd say, like my exposure early on was was limited or, or restricted. Mm-hmm. And you know, for whatever reason, I think this might be true of a lot of people, like watching uh, foreign films or foreign, um, you know, television. Even is just something that we don't necessarily think of, and especially mm-hmm. in a very kind of like. American-centric mindset that we tend to have growing up in this country. We just think, sure. like, oh, well, if it's not made here, it's not as good, mm-hmm. um, unless it's a Ferrari. I don't know. But I, all this is is coming around full circle, so I can blow some smoke up your ass and say that, like, Story Break has been an inspiration for me in that because y'all would talk about different genres of film or different different kinds of film. Um, you did you did the one, it was near the end. I don't remember the name now, but it was, like, it was like the... Asian combat. It was like bullet hell. I don't remember what it's called. It was oh like the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, heroes fire bullets. I heroes think something fire bullets, stupid yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't remember what genre specifically it was about, but the way that you guys talked about the emotional dynamic of like these these two men, these two main characters, like being you know both like brothers at the same time, but having this like you know being diametrically opposed to each other and being the the push and pull. All of this is stuff that I don't see necessarily in American cinema. And it was, you know, I have movies that you guys suggested, like, on my list. I have a story break list. Oh, just cool. like, I need to go watch these movies. So all that to say, like, it can be hard to, as a pop consumer, to find some of the stuff. So shows like yours and what y'all did, um, I think, are a big inspiration and an important part of, I think, artistic discovery for people who didn't know that there was other stuff out there to check out. It's funny because that kind of mirrors like my whole thing when I started getting into movies was, again, I was, again, Quentin Tarantino was my guy, right? Like I saw my my cousin showed me Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction like in high school. And I was like, this is the greatest thing that's ever existed. And then I remember being so excited for Kill Bill. I was losing my mind. And I was like, I just want more stuff with guys in suits with guns. Where can I get that? And then I started looking up all the movies that inspired Reservoir Dogs and inspired Quentin Tarantino. And then I was like, Oh, like, oh, wow, John Woo. Like, holy shit. Like, this is really... Then you're like, well, what? Did John Woo watch this movie called Le Samurai? What's that about? That sounds dope as hell. And then I watched Le Samurai and I was six and I was like, well, this is a little boring. There's no big gunfights. Like, what's going on? And I was like, oh, wait, no, this movie's super cool. So it's like the learning from the... Like, again, like the the people that, like, you're inspired by, like, what inspired them is, like, a good way to kind of start diving down the rabbit hole and finding your own stuff. And I really do feel like it's super important as... It's funny because I always hear people say like, oh, if you're a screenwriter, you got to read a lot of screenplays, which I'm very bad about. I don't read a lot of screenplays. I'm like, I think they're really boring. I don't like, I'd just rather watch the movie. I do think it's very important to consume a lot of media. And I think it's important to to branch out beyond like just whatever is kind of mainstream and in the moment. Like, I think if you're only like, all right, I'll, I'll take one gripe. I'll take one shot, which is like, I think a lot of modern big IP stuff. Like when you look at Star Wars, when George Lucas made Star Wars, he was inspired by Kurosawa and uh, he was inspired by Flash Gordon and his own experimental work. Like he, a lot and Triumph of the Will, like he had like a very diverse palette of influences and tones and styles, Sergio Leone Westerns, and all of that came together to create Star Wars. And then modern Star Wars stuff, like everything post-Disney, like to me, just feels like it's only about Star Wars. Like it is only inspired by the actual first, by the first films. Like, and there doesn't really, and I think you see a little bit of like, you know, Ryan Johnson, I think, you know, branched out a little bit in terms of like what he was pulling from. But like, to me, it just becomes so solipsistic. It becomes so about itself that it kind of loses a bit of that magic. And like, it stops feeling 
like what you're never going to get the next Star Wars by like in terms of like the next thing that's going to have the cultural impact of Star Wars by just doing more Star Wars because again it's like the, the you look at the Matrix right and the Matrix was this insane synthesis of anime and cyberpunk and uh and martial arts films and noir and like it all came together in this beautiful package and then like you see people be like oh I'm just going to do a movie and I'm only going to be inspired by the Matrix when I do it and it just feels derivative um so like I think it's important to watch a broad range of stuff. I also think it's important to read a broad range of books to just like whatever interests you. Like I think you very much, it's like a digestive process. You are what you eat. The art you make is going to be the end result of the stuff you've consumed and the experiences you've had, you know, run through your body and excremented out the other side is kind of what you wind up with at the end of the day. Um, like video game high school was, you know, speed racer and obviously a shit ton of video games that we played as kids and movies like the Karate Kid or Harry Potter. Like there was a lot that went into that that wound up creating it. Yeah, because when when you when you do what you're talking about, when you kind of do the post Disney Star Wars thing, like you lose that like elusive sense of familiarity. Like when you when you see a film that has drawn on so many other influences, whether you've seen them or not, at, at least for me, there's this kind of like feeling of like something that you've experienced before or, or you can tell that 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 it's it's bringing something outside of itself when you kind of sit down mm-hmm. and watch a and, and I love Marvel movies fucking love Marvel movies but like you know what to expect and you expect what you expect from a Marvel movie and you expect it to look like a Marvel movie because it's just like a, a, a reiteration of itself and so you lose that little bit of like I don't know um exotic sounds like too loaded of a word but that that just it's spice you lose some of the flavor where you're like oh I took that bite is that coriander what is that you know and I think it's also like you have inevitably as an artist, you have the, what you're trying to make and then you have what is going to come out like and what is actually going to get made by you. Right. Mm. Like, again, I think with an example like Star Wars, Lucas had this ambition that he was aiming for. And then like the end result, like it was all of that stuff that transformed by, you know, him and his team and everybody that worked on that movie. And like when you have like the copy of the copy, when you have like Star Wars just trying again, it's like so I was just ranting to the guys about this with like the trench run to me is a really fantastic example of that dogfight doesn't feel like anything else in Star Wars. It's almost procedural because it's he's he was drawing and again he cut the movie he cut it together with World War II stock footage. Like it is inspired by the dog aerial mm-hmm. dogfight battles of World War II and he wanted to bring the sort of methodical feel of a movie like 12 O'Clock High to that fight. Like there's a lot of time spent on the radio chatter between side characters. You're following this battle in fairly minute military detail. And the same thing I think with the ATAT fight. Like it's it's the it's the elephants crossing the Alps, but it's like you see the progression of this battle in a very siege-like, interesting, tactical way that clearly he's just a big nerd about. And then I think with the modern Star Wars movies, like they just want it to feel Star Wars-y, right? So it's like we want to capture, you know, Star Wars is lasers and guys running through space corridors and like hot dog fighting maneuvers. And so they have, it almost feels, it's like those, um you know, those neural net that make paint, like you type in like, Star Wars and then it just kind of gives you like a sort of an aesthetic vomit that you're like that is kind of Star Wars like if I squint that's the aesthetic barf of like what the Star Wars mood board is and that's what I feel like a lot of that you see right. that like w- when someone tries to take the original thing and just give you more of it like the it just ha- it has the feeling of it and it has the kind of texture of it but it doesn't it doesn't satisfy the same way the original was for me you know because I'm old <laughs> That's a great metaphor, though, because like, uh, and if you haven't messed with one of those AI generated apps, maybe it's not a good metaphor for you. But I, but I have, and you're right. You like, you you see it, and you're like, oh wait, no, 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 there it is. Like, uh, yeah, it's putting the bits together, even though it doesn't look like an original or intentional thing. 
but it's got the it's got the funny droid and it's got the amusing sidekick and like there are some lasers. Yeah, it's Star Wars. I had a friend who did he ran through one of those things. He just typed in the names of like directors and then like it literally like you would show you to be like Wes Anderson movie. And then it was like somehow like you're like, oh, my God, it's a Wes Anderson movie. Like I'm looking at this. like, And again, it's just this smear created by a computer. But you're like, yep, that's the aesthetic. Right. Like and so like when people are like AI could do this in the future, I'm like, that's kind of what you're going to get. It kind of feels like what we're getting now, honestly, to me anyway. But um, enough about that. Enough of old man yells at cloud. <laughs> Well, we, we've we've mentioned Story Break a few different mm-hmm. times, uh, which, again, rest in peace, the, the show has now come to an end, and you guys, I thought, kind of ended it very beautifully, and your reasons for ending it seemed uh, really good, and because you're at great places in your career. But for people who haven't listened, there's a huge back catalog of this fantastic show you can go check out, as well as, like, several full, complete, essentially epic films in the form of Heaven Heist and uh, and the Star Wars one that y'all did. Um what what is story break and kind of what inspired y'all to to put that show together as creatives so uh story break is a writer's room podcast is what we call it and it is the the jokey headline was three hollywood professionals take an hour to come up with an epic pitch for an awesome movie and so we would just like grab an idea we'd be like uh what's the captain crunch movie right and then we'd spend you know an hour trying to figure out a captain crunch movie you're like is this you know he's a captain right so it's got to be on a boat like what if it's like and then you're like what if it's like master and commander right but he's setting the seas for flavor right and like you know like we like you just start riffing and then you come up with like who captain crunch is and like what he wants and then you try to build a little story and by the end you're hoping that we would use a five act structure because i like a five act structure like from shakespeare and we would kind of pitch the five acts of it and be like yeah that's the movie more or less um so we did that for like a hundred bazillion episodes and then we decided to mix up the format two different times by taking one of the movies that we had come up with and then writing it scene by scene and then the kind of that alternate format which we had we did a movie called heaven heist which was about a crew of criminals robbing the celestial bank of heaven and then we did a jar jar binks movie which was one we had done a jar jar episode for like our second or third episode it was one of our most popular episodes it's like a sort of dark political thriller turned tragedy about jar jar binks and we were like, let's, you know, like before we were, I knew we, the show was kind of coming to an end. And I was like, I want to write this movie or I now or I never will. And so we wrote the Jar Jar Binks movie scene by scene. And it's like a kind of more micro view where we, it's the same process, but you're going into like what makes a scene work as opposed to what makes a film work. Um, so yeah, that was the show. It was a ton of fun in terms of what inspired it. Uh, we were at Rocket Jump, uh, which was a YouTube channel that Freddie ran uh, with Matt. They started and then like we kind of grew up a company around. Uh there was a sub thing that Rocket Jump was doing called the Rocket Jump Film School uh, that was uh, put together by Lauren Haratunian, uh, who is a cinematographer we work with a lot, and uh, Joey Scomo, who's an editor, and then my wife, Cherish Chen, who is the producer. And so they put together a, they would do basically behind the scenes filmmaking videos. Like, here's how to set up a shot. Here's the different types of lenses. Like, the, we would talk, and we would all across the, the breadth of cinemas, like, videos on editing they put together a really great video called why cg sucks except it doesn't that was like a video essay about like all the way people bitch about like oh you know cg it's all crap and whatever he's like do you don't realize how much cg there is and how good it can be so like let's break it down so we and then as a company there was a light bulb switch one like because people really love this content we we're like oh again we were talking about the black box earlier like breaking down the black box like and letting people see this stuff there's an audience out there that's hungry for it and is fascinated by that process stuff kids like us that would have killed to see this stuff when we were growing up and trying to figure out like how to even read a screenplay like where could you find one so we had done a couple writing things with rocket jump film school and they had done some live streams that was a thing that they would do they and they would do these super fun ones where they would um 
recreate a shot from a movie. So like they would take like the shot in Hannibal Lecter in uh, Silence of the Lambs of Hannibal Lecter looking at Clarice and like you see his reflection like with her on this shot of her face. They'd be like, all right, let's break down how to do it. And then they would recreate it live with like two actors. I got to be Hannibal Lecter. It was really fun. But it's like, so they would do stuff like that. And they were like, we want to do a, uh, a writing one. And so my wife pitched me. She had heard me and Matt arguing in the bullpen about the Assassin's Creed movie and like complaining about like, there's no video- good video game movies or whatever. And like, what video game movie would we do? And so we were like, what would a Blast Core movie? Do you remember Blast Core for the Nintendo 64? It was this absurd fucking game where <laughs> yes, the yeah. premise, the only something so dumb only a video game could come up with it, where the premise is that there's like a self-driving runaway truck with a nuclear warhead on it that's roaring across the country. And this crew of elite demolition der- drivers, like this demolition wrecking crew needs to destroy everything in its path because if it crashes, it'll blow up and like, you know, cause a, you know, like a nuclear fallout. So we, we came up with this whole stupid idea for a show about it. And my wife was like, why don't you do that on the stream, on the Rocket Jump Film School stream? And like, you guys can break a story live and people will, you know, like get a chance to see it. And so we did and we had a great time. We were like, this is super fun. And it was a hop, skip and a jump from there to be like, why don't we just keep doing this and make a podcast about it? I mean, going back to the black box thing, like like you're right. And I think back to me, like in high school, I loved acting. I did theater. And at no point did it ever occur to me that I could keep doing theater mm-hmm. in more than like a school church setting, right? Just be, because even, um, and, and again, the whole homeschool, the evangelical world, that, that's a black box of its own. But it was still, even at that time in the 90s, like, like just something... You know, you heard about people just moving to L.A. to become a star, but like there wasn't that like, oh, well, you go to, mm-hmm. you know, UCB and you learn improv and then you probably like it was just like, oh, no, other people who live in that place already do that. Yeah. But what I really enjoyed like about your show was specifically like, the writer room breakdown, because, again, at the time before that, you think screenwriting is one dude sitting down writing a script like camera pans up you know blah 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 our hero enters the this thing and so the idea that it was much more of a chaotic you know uh integrated creative process was was essentially a new thought and was a very fascinating thing to me that was the moment that i knew i wanted to do it was when i realized there was a room of people making jokes and farting around all i was like that's the job for me i want that (laughs) like that was like the i remember i read reading something about the friends writers room and then when i was watching futurama like that was a big influence for me growing up I got the DVDs and I would listen to the writers' commentaries, and you would just hear these again. These fuck this. Then was the it was like the New York Yankees of writers on Futurama, just this murderous row. And they would all or the Simpsons, the same thing. Like then you would see hear them bullshit about their jokes and how they came up with it. And again, you realized, oh, this is it's and it's just. I mean, it's like it's don't get me started on the whole like they're like oh the only one writer is going to get the credit at the end of the episode right which is kind of goofy like the the way we think it still feels like we need to distill it to like this was a John Schwartzwelder episode this was a Conan O'Brien episode and usually there is someone who drafts it and you see why they get all the work but it is like it's the room right like the room is what brings it to life so that's and that was I'm, I've always been like a very collaborative person like that's how I like to work like I'm and I'm always like I need to write something by myself and I like I'm writing a script by myself right now and it's hell I've been working on it for years and I just slowly because you have to come up with all the ideas by yourself and with two other people in the room that's two more people that are coming up with it. again literally it's like if I had to describe the writing process it's literally you just sit down and come up with all right if a movie is 40 scenes every scene it has to have like six 
I like every line of dialogue in that scene, everything that happens in that scene, you have to come up with a hundred different ways each one of those things can happen, right? So there's just a ton of just generating and reacting to and pinging that. And it's a lot to do by yourself. And when you have other people, you're not only coming up with ideas, you're reacting to their ideas, which leads you to new places. So I'm in awe of people that, like, again, you hear about uh, Sorkin writing them, like, he would just bang out these. West Wing episodes and even he he had a room to break the stories like he would you know work with a room to come up with the stories but like for the first couple of seasons of the show he wrote every episode of the West Wing by its by himself he would just sit down and just knock them out I'm like how do you do that that's crazy anyway a bit of a tangent but yeah I think David Milch did the same thing on Deadwood. Like, have you ever watched like his writing process? Someone was telling me that it would literally like he'd go on set and then just lie down on the ground while a bunch of people would stare at him. And then he would just sort of like, yeah, it's weird. He didn't actually write. He had he had like interns there who were writing the script and he'd be like, and then so-and-so Ian McShane says this, and then this happens, and the other yeah, person yeah, says, yeah. Talk your mother, and like, you know, then the scene happens. It's well, it's it's like there's the scene in your head. And then there's like how you need to express that scene on the page. And like those can like, we, it's like the, the, the dumb stuff you'll hit your head on in terms of like when you're trying to actually describe something. Like someone like pointing a finger gun and going, like, you know, like one of those where they wink and like, you know, like do a little finger gun and do that noise. Like the, like I remember we were trying to put that in the script. We're like, how the fuck do we describe this? And it's like, if there was just a GIF, like I just put a GIF there and everybody's like, oh yeah, it's that thing. So there's like a bunch of little shit like that that you have to figure out or like, there's so there's this technical element of it that be, can become a real impediment to because again you're doing two different things right like when I write usually I'll I, I do it's like I have to sort of bat it's like approaching a spooked horse right like you don't want to like it'll run away from you or like like I again I'll do something like I'll just on paper I'll like sort of rough out the beats like in the very like this is Brian D is going to come in and he's going to have this kind of conversation with Jenny and this is where it's going to go. And then you fill it in and you're like, all right, well, this is the joke of this scene. You know, he's going to be hanging from a rope like because he's doing window washing and he's like, you know, rigged up in this goofy thing. So like, that's the joke. And they're like, it can be very easy to get stuck in like, how am I going to describe this on the page? But it's like, no, 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 like figure it all out first and then worry about that later. Like it's very iterative. But um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you. I don't, I don't understand how those guys do it by themselves. It's crazy. Kind of touching on your on your point about like oh the first time you kind of saw like the the extra features or whatever you know showing that oh the the chaos of a writer's room and going oh that's what I want is there room selfish question um, is there room in a writer's room for for just a chaos person like the person who isn't going to just go type the script down because because as I've heard that and I think back to different creative processes I've done in video production which I realize now in retrospect like oh we were doing a writer's room there were five of us sitting there we we're like it's five minutes short what are we gonna do. And I wasn't the one writing the dialogue. So I was like, oh, I'm not a, I'm not a writer. But then I hear this. I'm like, oh, I could be as long as I don't have to actually type anything. Yeah. If you're in their room and you're doing it, you're writing. Like on Story Break, that's Freddie. Like Freddie is the bomb thrower. I'll be sitting there being like, what does this mean? Like, what is it about? Like, is this about a man trying to understand his past and come to terms with it? And then I think Freddie's also like, this is getting boring. Like, let me throw some jokes in here and stuff. But like Freddie will be constantly that person. Um, on video game high school, when we were writing the drafts, it was Brian Ferenzi, um, who uh, is would be a great person for you inter to interview. But he is a he was the he was one of the guys who created Five Second Films. I knew him from college, and he's just one of the funniest people I know. He, he guessed it on an episode of Story Break that was you know one of our one of our better ones, and he played the law on Video Game High School. He's the villain of the show. Okay, yeah, yeah. He is just like. It would be me sweating bullets over the keyboard and arguing with Matt, and then Brian would just be sitting there, and then he would just say something buck wild, and then it would be like, that's it. Like, I remember we were trying to do, we were writing at IHOP at like three in the morning, trying to get a draft done, 
and I'm sitting there like hunched over the keyboard just trying to figure out this scene and going back and forth with Matt. We're just drinking coffee and arguing with each other. And Brian was asleep in the booth. Like he was just literally like lying down, curled up, like just passed out. And then in the middle of us arguing, he just got up and then grabbed the keyboard and just like just started typing and then handed it to us and went back to sleep. And I was like, this is the funniest fucking thing I've ever read in my life. I was like, what the fuck just happened? So yeah, having someone that can, again, it's, everyone's coming in with a different perspective. They have different things, strengths and weaknesses and stuff like that. And having a room that really balances itself out. Like I think honestly, um, I think with Dungeons and Daddies, Beth brings a lot of that energy. Like Beth was, you know, like uh, she has a very different perspective. She's also like, it was well, literally, I think our, when we started recording it was her first time playing Dungeons and Dragons. And she has such a natural comic ability and she has such killer timing and like just these one liners and stuff that she'll throw out there. And especially like her character, Ron on the show is a totally different force of nature from everybody else. And like that heat, like it's like everything else is the gasoline and Beth is like the match. Like she'll just throw the match in and it explodes. So yeah, it's, it can be, it's like essential to have that kind of, and again, I think, but that brings up a good point, which is that I think you don't need everyone to be some freaking you know, story wonk egghead who's, you know, read art of dramatic writing or whatever to write a good story. Again, like this is storytelling is something everyone knows how to do. It is something you learn as a kid. It's something like everyone's like, if you can tell a joke, you can tell a story, right? Like the it's, there's a natural ability and. I remember when I was starting out, I read that, what's that Malcolm Gladwell thing where he's like, you need 10,000 hours to be good at something. And I remember freaking out about that. I'm like, how am I going to blah, blah, blah. And my dad told me, he's like, that's why you collaborate. You're like, you're going to leverage your 100 hours with someone else's 100 hours. You've got 1,000, he's got 1,000. You're going to throw it together and make it work. Like, like you're going to get your collective 10,000 hours from from the perspectives and experiences of everyone that's working on the project. And like, to me, that's where the magic is, is when you have that kind of diversity of energies and outlooks and perspectives because it can go disastrously too if no one trusts each other everyone wants something else like you kind of have to all have the same faith like i always joke about like matt and i like have very different perspectives on a lot of stuff like when it comes to art like we believe in the same god like i think i think me matt and freddie all have the same sort of like you know spiritual outlook on what art means and like what we're trying to do as artists so that means that like we can we can bring our different skill sets together and build something you know, that's shared that is better than anything we could have come up with on our own. When you don't see eye to eye with someone, even if it's someone you respect, even if it's someone you love, you love work, you love their work. If you don't see eye to eye on that, like it can be brutal. And then the art itself, like again, it's like one of my favorite um, Milch stories is, I don't know uh, if you heard this one, but when he was doing Luck with Michael Mann, these are, you could not picture two bigger egos than David Milch and Michael Mann working on a show together. Um, yeah. They hated each other. And they had these extremely specific rules for how they were going to work together. Where Michael Mann was, uh, David Milch was like, "You cannot touch a fucking word of my dialogue." And then Michael Mann was like, "You're banned from set." Like that was the that was essentially like you have like I have complete final control on the cut. You have complete final control on the script. You drop it off and get out of here. And like that was how they had to work together. So like the it can be it can be a process and it can be intense if you're. But again, like that tension can you know create its own wonderful stuff as well. Um, or kill a bunch of horses like I did with Buck. <laughs> yeah. Or, or both. I mean, you know, don't limit yourself. I, I love the idea that everyone inherently has um, storytelling in them, especially, you know, as as a parent watching a child mm-hmm. grow up and like seeing how she communicates and the story she tells and, going, and knowing that I have not taught her this except maybe by, you know, she's observed me being silly and telling stories, but something internally is coming from her. 
and that that that's what me as a as a nerdy gamer person loves about games like D and D or Cthulhu or you know these tabletop things. Like at the end of the day, there there are um, engines for storytelling, and seeing someone who does not consider themselves a creative person, who does not you know who who is resistant to the idea of playing games, suddenly get in and start telling a story, and not even realizing that they're doing it, seeing that kind of that that door mm-hmm. unlock in their head, right? Um, that's what I think is is beyond you know, doing magic and slaying orcs and having grand adventures. That's what's truly magical about like tabletop games to me is when it can unlock that moment for people who didn't realize they had that in them. And you just see the spark set off. Absolutely know what you're talking about. And it is, yeah, I don't, I think the way we, so one of like a a pet peeve of mine is I think we treat, and again, artists play into this, like create, like I don't believe in creative people. I really don't. Like I don't, I think everyone is creative. Like I think everyone has the capacity for creativity and to, you know, to create something beautiful. There are people that wind up pursuing that, right? Because they have emotional problems that, (laughs) that making art is the only way we can make ourselves happy, right? Like the, like if you're, if you're addicted to a certain kind of validation, you pursue a career in the arts like me. I really, I've never met a non-creative person that didn't have that ability, that genius in them. So like I, I get on my hobby horse all the time about um, Ratatouille, which is a great movie, but I really disagree with like this like well you know like anybody can cook, but like some people like really can cook. Like it's not you're not if you're a writer you're not a fucking Jedi Knight you're not a it's not you're not chosen you don't like it's like the this is what you've decided to do and like you've tapped into something and that's great and that's wonderful but I don't think it's more special than anything else right but. Uh, I can't remember where I was going with this, but yeah, and then yes, I've seen that. Like again, that's why I love about games like D and D is that they can allow they they allow people to break down. It gives you a permission structure to play and to be yourself. Right, every kid knows how to play. As an adult, you forget how to play. You forget how to create. The world kicks the absolute shit out of you, which is why we need movies like Spider-Man, why we need... Again, everyone's like, oh, the Star Wars stuff is like for adults now. It's not for kids anymore. Like Marvel, like you could grow up. It's like, no, adults need it more than kids do. Like a kid can take a rock and be amused by it. A kid can look at ants and be enraptured, right? An adult needs giant spectacle and all of this stuff just to be able to fucking like get our dead, withered hearts pumping again. And it's like that. So I'm like, no, that stuff's important. But um, so my sister, who um, studies interactive media, she's a professor in uh, USC's interactive media program. Uh, she helped me design. And when I DM this thing for Dungeons and Daddy, it's called Fetch Quest. She helped me put it together. And we were asking her, like, what's the difference between, because she's also, she's taught preschool and she's taught college kids. I was like, what's the difference between designing a game for a kid and designing a game for an adult? Because someone had asked, like, we had a question from one of our fans being like, I want to get my, like, they had, like, you know, I think, uh, they wanted to run a game for their kids who were like 10, 11, 12. And she was like, kids that age do not need the numbers. And they don't need as many numbers. They don't need as many rules. Because like that's for adults so that we can understand. Like We need that in order to be able to... like We're like, well, what do you mean you just cast the fireball? Like, is, well, did it miss? Did it hit? Like, how much damage did it do? Like, that's a very like grown-up thing. Whereas like kids can just roll. They can, they can deal with a looser system and still yeah, get a lot yeah. out of it. We would be remiss if we went the whole show without talking sure, somewhat yeah, yeah, about yeah. Dungeons and Daddies. Um, it's fair to say the smash success. Uh, <laughs> it certainly took me by surprise. Um, I talked to, I've talked about this yeah. before. I almost didn't do it. I was like, uh, yeah. was Freddie and Anthony came up with the concept. I was like, oh, it's a funny concept. I was like, I don't know if this is going to work. Like, what are they, we dads? And we are we pretending to be dads who are playing Dungeons and Dragons? Like, what is it? 
And they were like, we got to do it. It's going to be fun. Like, come on. Like, I wasn't like, to be honest, I'm not a huge fan of DTRPG shows. Like, I tried Adventure Zone. I really couldn't get into it. Like, I've tried a couple of them and they bounced off of me. I love Hello from the Magic Tavern, which is not obviously not the same thing. But I was like, all right, I'll, I'll try it out. And so then I begrudgingly went. I was like, oh, I'll be a hippie dad or whatever. And I was like, oh, my God, this is fucking a blast. I'm having a really fun time. And again, like, whenever you, when you start a new creative enterprise, like, that's another thing. Like, once you've done... Once you've done it enough and you've had enough successes and failures, you really realize you have no idea what's going to hit and what's not going to hit. I had stuff that I was like, this is the greatest thing I've ever written. This is the funniest. Or the number of times Matt, Freddie, and I would work ourselves into a lot of being like, this is the funniest video Rocket Jump has ever made. And we put it out and it's like a dud. And like you're like, all right, I, I guess I just got to keep trying, right? So I, I don't think any of us were prepared for the success that Dungeons and Daddies would bring. Um, and looking at it, you look at it in retrospect, I'm like, I can see where I'm like, oh, I see why this works. You know, like we have... Uh, different flavor than a lot of the other shows. Like, it helps us stand out. Like, we have tight episodes. It's a very viral hook. You know, you say Dungeons and Daddies, not a BDSM podcast, and people go, what is that? I need to know more about that. And then, like, it's great. Like, it's the genius of it is it's a concept that people have to explain to their coworkers so that they don't feel like weird when they're talking to their coworkers about it. Like, right, so it's called Dungeons right. and Daddies, but wait, let me finish. It's about four dads and blah, 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 blah. I don't know. I think it has a sort of virality to it. But yes, I, it's fair to say it's, a, I, I guess you could call it a, I mean, not in the perspective of something like, you know, Critical Role or whatever. But for me, it was a smash success. So I was del- I'm delighted. Critical Role lives in another stratosphere. You know, there it's, it's a whole other thing. Um, but you guys are often right there on like the podcast list. It's like, it's right there, which is which is pretty crazy. It's very weird. Um, and again, like I, I joke a lot about it. Like to the point where it's given me several existential crises where I was like, I don't like, I didn't go to school to play Dungeons and Dragons. You know, like I was like, I'm a writer. Like I, I want to learn to write. Like I had this very specific way of the way the world worked. And like, if you tried to explain to me when I was 18 that this is what, it'd be, what I was doing when I was 35, I'd be like, what the fuck are you talking about? You're going to like, what? Like, what? And so when you, when you have something like that happen, then you're like, I don't know anything. So I don't know what's going to happen next. I don't know what's going to happen with the show. I'm like, how am I going to continue? How am I going to do something else that's, that's successful? It just seems like I'm throwing, you know, you're just throwing pasta at the wall to see what sticks, you know? So anyway, um, but yeah. I, uh, I I very selfishly was very disappointed mm-hmm. at the beginning of the pandemic because y'all were about to do your first That's ever right, live yeah. show at uh, at Austin City Limits and I uh, I was like shoot road trip and gonna go do it which which again like and and I'm just I'm just thinking about it because like I don't know the show's so interesting to me because it's brought a lot of people that I know into wanting to play tabletop games which is ironic because you guys play a very D and D with air quotes loose yeah. Ver- yeah yeah which is what makes it honestly so successful. And I don't remember where I was going with this, but but like it's just it's I don't know it's been a great way to introduce people who are like what is this game that you go out and play for six hours with your friends? I'm like, well, go, mm-hmm. go listen to this show, Dungeons and Daddies, and I have to do the whole thing you just said, um, and it will explain to you the joy and the humor of mm-hmm. group storytelling. Um, so it's this great it's it's a great hook for people who are not really familiar with that. I, I'm curious uh, because you were coming up actually, I believe, should all things go correct, yesterday in future time. The, the first episode of the new season of Dungeons and Daddies will have premiered. How are, how are you feeling going into um, a new season? Because I, uh, I subscribe to the Patreon, so I get to listen to your, your after shows and stuff. And I, I remember one of the things Freddie said was that you guys really need to figure out a way to kind of bring that, we don't really know what this is, energy that you had at the beginning of the show into a new season. Um, how was that recording process mentally? And kind of how are you feeling as you come up on this thing that 
thousands of people are waiting for. Uh, Nerve-wracking would be definitely one way of describing it. Sure. Especially for me, I run hot, I run anxious, as any one of my co-hosts will tell you. Um, the So for me, you know, like it is like, the, it's a very, you know, we wanted to... It's tough. It's a. It's a. It was. A, it's a hard creative thing to put yourself into. I absolutely like in Anthony with trust. I think the concept he came up with is like the perfect way to do it because we're playing the grandkids of the main of the main cast, and so you're not trying to. Co- you're not throwing out all of the things that people liked about the show. Like you're you're staying in the world. You're, you've got that kind of momentum, but we get to play characters that don't give a shit about the original characters, right? Like the like, how what was the last time you could? How many of your friends' grandfathers can you even name their name? Right? <laughs> then that's so like I'm I like again, like I'm yeah. really excited as my character to like like if we like oh shit like we meet Daryl Wilson or whatever. It's like I don't know who this is. I don't fucking care. like all right. Like that's it's something that drives me crazy. And like was it like Wrath of Khan where? Benedict Cumberbatch is like, and my name is Khan. And then like Chris Pratt's Kirk is like, okay, like what? Like it's just such a. F- anyway, I always find that very funny. Um, yeah. So for me, it was like the you know yeah. So we we talked about it a lot where we were like we want to, especially because the show you get to the third season like you know we have these like heartbreaker episodes. The characters become more serious. They become more grounded, and like we have these really poignant emotional scenes, like this big emotional finale. And we're like we want to get back to pure goofs, like at, the, at least to start with. Like we don't want to be like we don't want to carry the season, the end of the season energy into the new top of the new season. We, it worked out great because we, uh, for bonus content, we wound up doing after shows for the first seven episodes of season one. Uh, so it was a really great way for all of us to re-listen to the early episodes and talk about them and kind of was like, oh yeah, like the characters were a little bit more raw. It's easy to go back and mythologize like the beginning and feel like you had it all figured out from the beginning and you're like, how am I ever going to figure this out again? But there's a lot of stumbles. There's a lot of us figuring it out. So that helped helped us kind of get in the mode. We had a couple of like very early character tests where we were just kind of workshopping different ideas for our teenagers, which was extremely helpful because like you kind of like get a you're like the first draft is never that great. So you're like, okay, let me try this and readjust. We have recorded as I'm recording this, we've recorded about half of the pilot. We did a of the of the not the pilot of the season two episode one. Um, we're going back to redo some stuff and kind of like kind of take another crack at the second half of the episode. Um, but I was very happy with how it went. Like we were laughing a lot. Again, it had this kind of manic energy that you know, like I think the show at its best has. And you know, everyone's teens were fucking cracking me up. Like that was another thing. We we're like, how are we gonna? It's such a different mode to be like, I'm playing a teenager versus I'm playing a dad, and. Well, you're playing a dad who doesn't know what they're doing. I'm like, I'm not a dad. I don't know how to do that. So, like, it actually seems pretty. It's like, what would I do if I was a dad? And you wind up with Henry, right? And so it's like, it's like kind of like, a, okay, what kind of teenager am I going to play? What's the vibe like? You know? And I think everyone locked into some really, really fun, funny stuff. So, um, hopefully, the second half of the record goes well. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling confident about it. And so, yeah, it's, but yeah, it was, it was scary. Again, because the, the first step, you want to capture that fuck it energy. Because when we came into the original show, like there was no ego involved. Like if it sucks, we just won't put it out, right? Like if it was just a dud, you just want to do it. Like we have to do it. So it was about trying to get into a place where you can kind of put all that stuff aside, get create. It's again, creating that vibe. Like once you've got the train going, like being able to pr- be very protective of that space where you can just play and not have a lot of pressure on yourself. We're also going to try to, I think, do a, record a good run of episodes before the first episode comes out. So we have... Like we can be in the space and making a show that we want to make for ourselves before we start getting uh, inundated with feedback on what we're doing, so we can kind of define it. Sure, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, but yeah, it's been I think the most deliberate we've been about cultivating that kind of thing in my career in terms of like with improv, especially compared to 
writing, like chemistry and the magic and the moment becomes so much more important. Like, again, like when you're writing something, you can rewrite it and redo it over and over and over again. We really, really try to, as little as possible, go back and change things, right? Like, I'd be like, oh, let's try this or that. Like, we want it to not feel constructed at all. We want it to feel very organic. And so you want to honor your first impression as much as you can. And so you want to create the best environment for that first impression as possible. And it's definitely like a different challenge for season two than season one. We're coming up on, on, on the very end, but I do want to yes. throw one more at you. Um, what from Dungeons and Daddies, whatever, the whole, everything you've done now for the past three, mm-hmm. almost three years? Is that right? Early oh, 2019? Man, yeah. uh, I think we can, yeah, 2019. Yeah, yeah. So going on three years, yeah. What are you most proud of that's come out of doing that show? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh it's funny because I can think of all this stuff. Like again, like Henry does not play a big part in some of our biggest episodes. Like the, um, I think the mm-hmm. uh, the episode we did, Death of a Salesman, uh, with Ron's backstory. Uh, I was so proud of Anthony and Beth. Like I was just blown away by what they put together with that, and it was so cool to just be in the room when that was happening. It was a really magical moment. Hardest I've ever cried in a podcast. We were crying in the room. I remember listening to it with my wife. We had to like pull over. Like this is an intense episode, and it like it really. I was I was so so happy with it. And so like the I'm I'm just very proud of the show. I'm glad that we can do a show that can do that, and then do like our Goblin D's nuts joke, or like on the exact opposite end of the spectrum, like the time travel bit that we did at the end of season two, like where we punked Anthony with this time travel move. Like we were cackling when we came up with it. And we were so excited to be able to do it. Like, I think the, the moments of the show that like I'm, that make me grin from ear to ear, and there's like, again, I hope we can get these kind of moments in season two, are the moments that we really rolled the dice like and just let whatever was in the room be what it was and keep it going from there. Like, uh, the Deck of Many Things episode, like, in terms of one of the things that Anthony pulled this rug out from under us and then just like it was so shocking again because and that's the nature of improv is like even when it's really good you don't really feel like you can take that much credit for it because it's just the amount of chaos that wound up going perfectly to make something that was better than anything we could have come up with like in the deck of many things where it was like one card after another and like and like these punchlines that just came out of nowhere it was really magical like it was one of my favorite experiences as an artist bar none anything I've ever done um so I would say probably those moments and then just like, you know, I love working with the people I'm working with. It is and it is like the if I could give any piece of advice to some to people who are coming into the industry or want to be creative, it is that find your tribe, find the people that you love to work with, treat them right, hold on to them dearly because that is it is really the most important resource in your career as the talent that you surround yourself with, the people you work with and friendships for life that I've formed with the people that uh, I've worked with, you know? So like the, it's, it's really, and it can be so easy to let your ego get in the way of that or to fuck up. And like, I've had those fuck ups. I've done that stuff and I hate it. Really cherishing your collaborators and your coworkers. Like I think is like, you know, one of the most important things. Like your dad said, bring your thousand hours, combine it with a bunch of other people's thousand hours. Like, like, boom, you got yourself a bunch of hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The other thing, the last, okay, one, one last thing, which is what I will also say is that a lot of people are like ask us for advice, and like my my number one advice is you just fucking do it, just make it, do your thing. It might not be good, and then if it's not good, do something else. But like the, and this is something I'm bad at. I'm bad at actualizing. That's why I love. Freddie. Freddie gets shit done. He's always been the guy who's like, I'm just going to go do it. Do you want to come do it? I'm like, yes, I'm desperate to do something, but I'm too scared to make the decision to do it myself. I'll cling to your back as we go do something. I'll help you out. Uh, Andrew, like your example, you were talking about this show. You were like, I'm just going to start doing an interview show and I'm going to start, like, I want this kind of content in the world. I'm going to make it myself. I'm going to figure it out. 
one of the really exciting things about the world we're in right now is the barriers of entry to do something that gets a wide audience have dropped so drastically in the time that we've been alive. Like, imagine you trying to make this show in 1990 and what would have had to go into making a podcast and an interview show for one, just going on, going to NPR and be like, I want to interview people every week about Dungeons and Dragons. and be like, fuck off. Like, what are you talking about? Well, I knew exactly what it took because I had my, uh, my Fisher price cassette recorder yes. that had the two little microphones on it. And I went around doing that. And then I was like, no one's going to listen to this. It's so, yeah. It's so it's like the, there are so few gatekeepers now. No one like knows what's going to hit. You know, you also don't need something to hit 10 million people to be successful. Like, you know, like the, and so it's just everything. It's just one of the, again, it's like you look at like TikTok, right? And like the amount of people that are making, again, Freddie always talks about like, I don't need to, like if I just want to laugh, like I don't need to go do a movie to watch a comedy anymore. I can just like literally the aggregate of fucking, am- like I'm so excited for what the next generation of filmmakers who grew up on TikTok are going to make when they start making movies, like or if they start making movies. And maybe they don't even need it anymore. But anyway, so that would be my other advice is just pick up a phone, get whatever you can and start doing it because it is, that is the most important thing and that is the way you'll learn. So anyway, that's it. I, I love that idea that like you don't have to have 10,000 people, 100,000 people. Like it, it sounds trite. It can't sound trite to say like, oh, well, if only 100 people listen, like as long as they care, that's what's important. Like, and part of you is like, well, yeah, but I want a lot of people to see my art or my creation. But the flip side is like it is it is so easy now because of the the Lord barriers for people who are truly passionate about a specific type of content to find that content and then passionately consume it. Yes. And there is value in, it's not like, it's not like four moms from your neighborhood saw your thing and were like, oh, we're really glad you made a thing. Four people who are wild as fuck about you saw this thing and it meant something to them in a very deep way. Beyond also the artistic thing, like you can make a career doing that. Do you know what I mean? Like I remember when I first started hearing about Patreon, I was like, what? Like people are doing what? Like I remember Matt, so Matt, uh, he was like, we should start looking at Patreon because he, again, he's a big uh, Warhammer nerd. And so he was following a minifig painter on YouTube. And then the guy's like, hey, I have a Patreon and, you know, like support my thing. And, the, and this is you know, a couple thousand people on Patreon kicking him some money. He was able to quit his job to paint minifigs all day, which was his dream. And again, this is like, if you look at like, this is literally like 0% of the population is supporting you as an artist for you to make a living. It used to be like, if you wanted to make a living as a writer, you had to be consistently, you wanted to be writing on a show that millions of people were watching, right? And that was how you made your money. I remember uh, Anthony has a friend who's a game designer who made a little indie game on Steam. And literally he was like, he made, I think like, like this was like, he made like, I think a million dollars on this game. And then he went and looked at the statistics of how many Steam, of Steam's global user base, what percentage had downloaded and bought his game and it was zero percent it was zero percent it was like literally like point zero one percent of steam's user base bought his game for 10 bucks or whatever and that wound up being enough people for him to make a living doing his game so it's like again like i just it the it is literally like it has never been a better time again the challenge the challenge is everyone there's no there's no barrier so it's a c right you don't know what's but again which is why it's so important to fucking go make the thing the guy who made wordle did not spend a lot of time ideating and dithering and be like, oh, I don't have enough, I don't have unity, I don't have enough money to. He just banged it out and put it online. And if it didn't work, he'd go on and do something else, and it'd be like, all right, I made a fun game, it didn't really succeed, but maybe the next thing will. But you don't know what's going to be Wordle and what's going to be, you know, something like that. Anyway, here endeth the rant. <laughs> And a good rant it was. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining. And uh, as those of you who listen to the show, and if this is your first time, you're hearing about it now, um, here at the show, we also have a Patreon. 
at patreon.com slash roll for persuasion, where you can get bonus content from all my guests, a little 10, 15, sometimes 20 minute segment we call the zone of truth. Why? Because I made the name up on the fly and that's how you name things. Uh, but it's a time where I chat with my guests about uh, something they're into, something they're passionate about. Sometimes I pitch it as like, if you were at a party and somebody was willing to listen to the ridiculous thing you're obsessed about, what would you be telling them about? And uh, we think it up on the fly. It's all very off the cuff. But, but Will, what are you, what are you into? What, uh, what sits in the back of your head that you don't get to talk about enough that you'd love to chat about, uh, you know, for 15, 20 minutes? Um, oh, that's a good school. I'll start by, so I, my pandemic hobby is I started playing the violin. Oh, okay. I've always been interested in learning a string instrument. I played saxophone in high school, um, and I haven't played music in a long time, and like, it's been really, really fun, and I'm terrible at it, and it's been really, really good to, as an adult, do something that you suck at. And I think it's a really invigorating process to learn something from the ground up that you have no idea what you're doing. Um, I was inspired, like, in my, um, my dad uh, started learning Latin, and, like, he's always been, like, terrible at grammar, and, like, he was, like, he just one day was, like, what's the hardest thing I can do? Like, because he was interested in theology and stuff like that. Um, and so he wanted, he's, like, I want to translate Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologica from Latin, right? And, it's like, that's, it's not, like, that's, that's yes, that's the, that's the that's the me being like I want to play Takata and Fugue on violin or like you know whatever right like you you have some big dream and then you're like I'm gonna just start learning it and like it was it it was a challenge for him and he really he really grew to love it and I found a similar thing where it's like it's liberating to like as a kid like when you go to school and I'll be I'm curious how your experience was homeschooling with this uh, in public school like I think you get exposed to so many different things like it's when I think about like. As a kid, like that, we're like, this is what we like. This is what the average sixteen-year-old has to do. It's like, all right, you're gonna wake up at fucking negative seven in the morning. You're gonna go to school. You're gonna learn history, math, calculus, another language, music. You know, uh, you know, uh, drama, and then you're gonna do a sport. You're gonna run six miles, and then you're gonna go home, and then you're gonna do homework, doing all of that stuff. You are shotgunning, learning all of these different things, and you're terrible at all of them, right? You're fucking bad because you're a kid. You don't have any experience. You're just getting dunked on constantly. And I think by the time you hit adulthood, you're like, I'm ready to never do that again. That was exhausting. But as an adult, like I've really come to enjoy learning and like learning new skills and learning about new stuff. And so, like, the, I have found for violin, like, it's, again, something as a kid, you could not have literally paid me to do this, but, like, to learn something from the ground up and to struggle with it and to, and to slowly get the process of starting to feel good at it, it's good for your soul. Like, it grows, it grows who you are as a person. So, I really recommend it. That'll be a great segue for that segment um, because I have some thoughts about really? violin and specifically about, like you said, mm -hmm. adult, adult learning. Well, thoughts about violin, meaning my own. We'll get to it if you're a patron. Uh, at patreon.com slash roll for persuasion. You can hear my thoughts on the violin. You can hear Will's thoughts on the violin and uh, adult learning and the things that we can do uh, once we have left the nest of childhood behind. Um, for just five bucks a month, you get access to that and all previous bonus content. I don't even know how many episodes it is at this point, but you can hear some really That's great- That's a fucking one cappuccino at Starbucks, especially with inflation right now. Like that is one drink if a month. If you would just w once a month drink less Starbucks, you could either become a millionaire or support my Patreon. <laughs> so you choose millennial. Put your friends. avocado toast money into becoming a millionaire. Right. Put your Starbucks once a month cappuccino money into supporting Andrew's show and getting a bunch of great bonus content. 
Exactly. Exactly. Um, Will, thank you so much for joining. I'm excited to keep talking in a few yeah. minutes. Uh, but where can where can people find you? Obviously, like we said, the new season of Dungeons and Daddy should have should have dropped. Where can they can find that? Uh, anything you have coming up that you care to share or point people towards? Um, Dungeons and Daddies is available as they say wherever you get your podcasts, wherever a fine podcasts are purveyed. Um, we're everywhere. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Dungeons and Dads. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Will B Campos. Um, so yeah, check out the show. Um, I got a bunch of stuff I'm working on, but nothing like in the in the plug thing. Oh, uh, my so my wife Cherish Chen is writing a uh, comic called Radiant Red, uh, which is uh you can it's at Image Comics. It's the first issue is going to come out in March. It's so fucking cool. It's a spinoff of a really cool uh, Tokusatsu book called Radiant Black, which you should also check out. Which she also wrote an issue of. Um, but Radiant Red comes out in March. It's one of Polygon's uh, most anticipated comics of 2022. So I really, really recommend it if you like superheroes, if you like Power Rangers. It's like millennial Power Rangers is the push. It's like, what if instead of teenagers with attitudes getting these powers, it was adults with, you know, like, you know, struggling with a writing career or like in, you know, sort of like loveless marriages that get superpowers and like, what would they do with it? And it's a, the, the whole, the whole universe is very human and fun. It's a classic superhero story and Radiant Red is like the first spinoff and it is a really, really fun time. It's been super cool what seeing what she's doing at the artist day with the Lil Fuente did Ultimate Spider-Man. Uh, he's a really big deal and he's doing her book as well on the pages. I've, it's been cool being on the other side of it, seeing the pages coming because it's so, the art's fucking gorgeous. The story's great. Go check it out. That's super exciting. Uh, I always have trouble getting new comic book recommendations. So like, well, there you I'm, go. I'm personally very pumped uh, to check that out. Well, that's super cool. So everybody check that out. Links to uh, all of that will be in the show notes. So make sure you look there. And of course, you can follow the show at Roll Persuasion on Twitter, where uh, I tweet my daily Wordle scores. So if you're nice. curious about that. How'd you do you with can... today's? Have you done today's yet? Yeah, I got it in four. I got it in five. Today. It was tough. It was a tough one. The other day, what was it? Query? What the fuck? That was, that was brutal. My that was my first one that I'd ever done Wordle on. And I was like, whoa. Oh, I um, think you said you got it on your first guess. I was like, get out oh, of here. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> one of my friends, his his starter word, his, like, everyone's like, what's your starter word? His starter word is query. And then he was like, I'm not going to do query today. And then he was, this, he was like, are you fucking kidding me? Anyway, dude, Wordle's brilliant. See, my starter word is just like I just steal from from uh, Wheel of Fortune. I'm like R S T L and E, like the most common letters in the in in English words. I'm gonna do some combination of that. So, oh, query. Maybe I should try that. What's your starter word? What's the go? What is your R S T stern? Oh gosh, uh, I stern was one. I tried runes the other day, which runes, um, interesting. Yeah, are you any? Yeah, uh, and they usually they usually get me one or two. Yeah, but then That's all you, you do kind of miss out on that, like you know that one in a million shot of like, can I nail the word first try? So it's that, am I being strategic? Wordle's the great, it hits that vein of like a game that makes you feel very smart. Like when yeah. you get it, like you feel like Sherlock. I was like, naturally I deduced it with my intellectual prowess. It was child's play. <laughs> it's like the game is like so good at giving you that feeling, <laughs> right. which is why it's so addictive. And they only let you play it once because... And that's the thing. They give you a countdown. As soon as you succeed, they're like, this is how long until your next hit. And you're like, do I set an alarm for midnight? And because they know that if you keep doing it and you start failing, you're not going to feel smart anymore. So like, no, you get one, you get your best shot, and then come back tomorrow to feel smart again. I love it. It's genius. It, it's it's brilliant. So you can check all that out on my Twitter at Roll Persuasion. You can check out the show, rollpersuasion.com. Uh, also available where fine and some not-so-fine podcasts are available. <laughs> you can check this one out. Uh, leave a review on the Apple podcast thing. If you feel so inclined, leave several reviews, go to the Apple store, use all their phones. Uh, I'm not going to judge what you do with your life, but there are some ideas for you. Every laptop, every screen, just put Roll for Persuasion up on it and start playing it in the store. 
That's called growth hacking, friends. <laughs> and uh, it's on my resume. But thank you so much for listening and joining, Will. Thank you for, for joining us. Thanks I'm for excited having to me. chat for a few more minutes. Uh, and until next time, guys, enjoy your games. 